This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. Today we're going to be talking about Mortal Engines. By Philip Reeve. Book yes. one of the Predator Cities Quartet. We did, you know, the Hunger Games one and how we live now and stuff, especially Mockingjay. You know, it's not actually that far off from the current situation we're in now. It's nice that, like, this, this book has got cool airships flying around, ancient lasers. Cyborgs. Cyborgs. And that's even before you start talking about, there are cities that are driving around. <laughs> yeah, okay, let me read out the first sentence of this, because this is the most insane premise for a book that I've ever heard. Like, full stop. It was a dark, blustery afternoon in spring, and the city of London was chasing a small mining town across the dried-out bed of the Old North Sea. The city of London was chasing a small mining town. <laughs> like, that's a killer first sentence. So yeah, when I heard about it, I knew we had to do it for the podcast. Mm -hmm. It is also a young adult novel, so we've got some, some young heroes who help to make a big difference in their world. Yeah, I, I believe the main character is around 15. Mm -hmm. and, you uh, mean Tom? Or? Tom, yeah. Initially, when you, are, when you first start reading it, they talk about, you know, like, London chasing after another city and then consuming it or eating it. And you think that's kind of a metaphor for it, like sort of subsuming that city into itself. But no, it literally has enormous jaws. They're on wheels. <laughs> and there, there's wheels and the city has <laughs> enormous jaws physically <laughs> eating the city. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Which they then sort of break up for its component resources. Yeah, great. So we're going to spend a lot of time getting into this setting because it takes quite a while to understand like, what the hell is happening? And also that, oh, he's really committed to this. Like, he's really thought this through. Yeah, yeah. And we'll also talk about the plausibility, the scariness, hope for the future. How would we do? So let's get into the setting. The setting. We start off in the city of London, which, as we mentioned, is on wheels. Right. For a long time, it's been sort of mooching around the sort of in the north, I guess. I, I get the impression that it's like where the UK is now. Yeah, but in general, the great hunting ground is Europe and Northern Asia. Right. Which is all muddy tracks. So it, it is thousands of years in the future. Yeah. At one point, they asked somebody to dust the 43rd century glassware. So that gives you some idea. Right. This is, yeah, after something called the 60-minute war. Huh? Which I think is the shortest war we've had so far. We've yeah. had the five-day war, the yeah. one-day war. The premise is that during the 60-minute war, the forces that were unleashed upon the world were such that it completely destroyed a ton of stuff and also messed up all the like tectonics. And so the initial idea for the moving cities was because the earthquakes and the, the seismic activity was so bad that they moved the cities around in order to protect them. I think that has sort of 
fallen off now. Like there's the, the seismic activity isn't so bad anymore, but they still have the cities because they think they're cool. Yeah, well, there's a <laughs> philosophy which was set down by the engineer Nicholas Quirk, who turned mm. London into the first traction city, which is called municipal Darwinism. Right. And it's the idea that uh, cities are meant to prey on each other and to chow down on each other, and it's survival of the fittest, basically. So we're, we're focusing on London, which has been reconfigured into this seven-tiered layer cake. We've got all the engine stuff on the bottom, and of course the tractor treads mm -hmm. at the very bottom. And then we have poor people, and then rich people, and then at the very top there's just St. Paul's Cathedral. 2,000 right. feet above the ruined earth is where the top of it is. Yeah. You can imagine it being quite the impressive sight coming over the horizon. Yes, yeah, it would make an impression, Paul, for sure. The horizon, of course, is just like flat mud. The great hunting ground Europe has been flattened by all this city traffic. Right. What are some of the other cities we have? One, a city called Archangel, which I think is supposed to be, is like Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Which actually travels around on the water a lot. There's a, there's a smaller city that they encounter called Speedwell. That's, I guess, a really fast-moving city. I've got uh, the ziggurat towns of the Nuovo Mayans. Ooh. And then there's, of course, the flying city of Airhaven, which we landed right. on at one point. Right. Because of all the predation from cities on rollers, they just decided to fill up a bunch of airbags and float through the sky. I was happy it was still flying by the end of the book because uh, it would be very easy to just sink it. Technology to actually create new stuff is not very common. Not very many people know about it. Especially electronics like computers and things. Right. So a lot of stuff is centered around sort of unearthing technology from what they call old tech from before, either before the 60-minute war or, I guess, right afterward while they were still having fancy technology. Yeah, including things that are advanced from our time. Like there's the resurrected men. Right. Who are, are also called stalkers. So they are humans that have been merged with machines to be these relentless tracking machines. And in like this big sort of laser cannon that becomes a big part of the plot. So clearly the 60-minute war happened, you know, maybe even like 100 years in the future from where we are now. Like a lot of the reason why the great hunting ground is barren mud and stuff is partially because all these cities are driving around, but also because a lot of it has been sort of destroyed and defoliated. There's the American desert, for example, the remains of the American empire. Right. They talk about that it's like the dead continent, that people take make very, very arduous, difficult journeys there sometimes because there's a lot of old tech, but no one lives there because it's all irradiated. Yes, yeah, so we're covering a lot of grandpa. I think probably people are getting overwhelmed. All right. Because uh, there's a lot of centuries involved. But it's actually very grounded on the lives of these teenagers, mostly living in London, the main characters, Tom, for example, and Catherine. Tom is with the historians, so that's one of three guilds that I think we learn about that study this old technology and preserve it in museums and things, all of which sort of rattle every time the city is in motion. <laughs> yeah, you think they'd have more, uh, more sort of tie-downs and stuff. <laughs> The hunting has become scarce, and the city of London has struck out across this hunting ground to this big wall that separates Southeast Asia, I guess, from Europe. 
it's in the Himalayas, basically, this gigantic wall. So there's obviously there's all these cities driving around doing their thing, eating each other. But then there's um, a large group of people who, for some bizarre reason, <laughs> have decided that driving around in cities like cars isn't the most efficient way of doing things. <laughs> They're called the Anti-Traction League, or at least that's what the uh, people on the, on the moving cities called them. They are all in this sort of Eastern Asia area, and they're protected because, of course, these big cities can't go past the mountains. Mm -hmm. The gist of the book turns out to be a big confrontation between the city of London, armed with this weapon, and the possibility of them breaking through into this huge area that has been safe from the cities up until now. But there is this crisis of finding prey at the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, our hero Tom gets dumped out of the city of London and ends up on the ground and on a quest along the ground with this other girl named Hester. And so there we we get kind of a tour of of what the ground is like and what various other types of cities are like that they get picked up by, uh, like a pirate city. There's not only these big cities like London, there's little teeny cities like scooting around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like monster truck tires. Yeah, yeah. And there's uh, scavenger cities, like ones that pick the bones of big cities that have gone down for some reason. But yeah, we get to see a lot of both the wider world of airships. There's like a hub city where everybody trades. Mm -hmm. All the cities come to trade. And also the organization of society in London. It's a very super hierarchical world. Right, yeah. I mean, there's, there's literally levels of, you know, where people go. In London, there's the seven different levels, and there's even sort of a sub-level that's like below the bottom level where sort of there's prisoners and all sorts of nasty stuff happens, which is sort of hidden from the greater population of London. Yeah, the deep gut. And so we learned that it's a very Victorian attitude towards basically treating people well. Like there's convicts down in the gut who basically eat recycled poop and their lives are worth nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Someone asks, what did they do? Oh, this and that. Petty theft. Tax dodging. Criticizing our Lord Mayor. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nothing like we would see as a democracy, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. Every And people seem to have decided on the, the sort of Lord Mayor as the highest authority. Even these little, like other little cities that they encounter other than London have the Lord Mayor there doesn't seem to be any democratic cities or anything. Everything is based around these sort of little fiefdoms. Yeah. In some ways, it resembles like some of these dome city dystopias where everything is controlled. For example, people are born in special nurseries and raised and programmed in learning labs and so on. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a, a bit of a devil on my back feel to it. Mm-hmm. But it's much more cheerful because everybody's on the same team. They're like, yay, London. <laughs> We're going to... Uh, Eat this other city. Yeah, everybody who is in London anyway, not people who are on the other city. They're literally chasing after another city, and then large jaws at the bottom of the city open up, and they literally, like, consume the other city. But the process of consuming the other city is slow enough that people, the people who are living in this other city actually are sort of taken aboard and become kind of resettled on London. Is how it's supposed to work anyway. Like there's a pirate city that we encounter later on where obviously they don't care quite so much about the people. But the idea is that the London consumes the resources 
and you know takes the the fuel and engines and stuff from another city but the people are actually sort of resettled onto london which is kind of interesting yeah they're not all killed although there's this extreme it would be like nationalism if it was for a nation except it's for your town right obviously yeah uh, being resettled onto London is probably not a very good situation for those people. I mean, considering how hierarchical London society is, I would imagine that the people who came from another city that was just eaten are probably not very high up in the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, they're probably a bit better than slaves, but not much. It's not just, you know, rah, rah, our football team is going to beat yours. Right. Uh, it's Sheffield United. Our city is going to literally munch yours. Yeah. And your city yeah. will be no longer no longer exist. Yeah, and everybody shows up in the public gardens, like cheering, waving banners. Yay, London! We're eating a city. Well, because it also it's also very important. The whole idea behind these these moving cities is that they aren't self sustaining. They have to actually be consuming other cities in order to work. Yeah, so everybody does better when a city's just been consumed. Mm -hmm. All the, the, the wealth of that comes to everybody. Yeah, the manners and the general way that everything looks is kind of Victorian. Yeah. People refer to as gentlemen, we have manners. It, it This is basically steampunk. Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's more steampunky than uh, probably pretty much anything else we've done. Uh, mm -hmm. Although maybe coal yeah like that and it does seem to be you know we are there isn't some sort of fancy you know nuclear power system that they're running on it is indeed coal power or or you know wood fires and stuff one little detail i like by the way i i wrote down a lot of little details in the landscape you know besides being just flat and muddy they've run across these tall spines of rock the town nod cores of old mountains Towns have been gnawing on mountains and leaving just spindles. <laughs> All this stuff is like so awesome to try to imagine. Mm. And by making it about cities, smashing into other cities, like it's inherently a world where big things happen. Right. Where the stakes are high. And it's also quite wonderful how skillfully works in the story of these young people trying to make a difference. Although sometimes just motivated by personal vengeance or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not really getting into the plot too much. I think I don't want to spoil it that much, to be honest. You should just read it. Plausibility. <laughs> All right. So, leaving aside the giant uh, cities driving around on treads. Okay. Take that as a given. Yeah. Obviously, that's silly. But the fact <laughs> hey. that... What I love about it, it's that it's that great thing that you do with science fiction and stuff, where you 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 start with a premise that is totally bizarre and weird, but then actually try to you know work out what would this mean, like assuming this is the case, what are the implications of it? And I thought it did actually a pretty good job of that, talking about you know how they work in different circumstances and you know different types of uh, cities work on different yeah. terrains and stuff how the eating of other cities operates and that kind of stuff. Here's some detail on that. Circular saws as big as Ferris wheels. Big yellow dismantling machines were crawling around it on tracks and swinging above it on cranes and clambering over it on hydraulic spider legs. Mm. And also humans going to work on it with regular tools to pull apart the city when it's in the gut, which is the 
holding area once it's been eaten. The the idea of you know scaling up giant saws and things would probably not work and be very disappointing in real life, but the image of it is very cool. And, and it's all the details that sell it, like all the ways that he's thought it up. Like cities have waste heaps that they leave behind, which is shit. <laughs> yeah, know, like cities poop. And then other cities will come by and uh, scavengers will come by and sort through it and then, you know, sell some stuff that they find. Right. It mentions red taillights for the city of London at one point. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like the idea of, like, you know, maybe, you know, making a ginormous beeping noise when it backs up. <laughs> ah! We break for nobody. That constellation is what the ancients used to call the Great Bear, but most people nowadays call it the city. So they've even renamed the the Big Dipper to the right, city. Yeah. <laughs> they worship they worship the guy who put cities on wheels and have other gods that are related to being in motion. Because the the actual culture of the London town itself is you know in a lot of ways it's based on this kind of Victorian, very uh, rigid hierarchy style especially the sort of post-apocalyptic world you can imagine it kind of sorting itself out like that the rigidity of victorian society kind of translates to the discipline required to keep this city going self-contained mm -hmm. so what about the ecology of it though paul like if it's eating a big city pretty regularly where are the new cities coming from well i mean that's part of the problem right is that they talk about how the great hunting ground, it's a lot harder to find cities these days. Right. My reaction was, well, duh. I mean, like... Right. New cities are being created, but presumably it would take a very long time for... You would start off with just, like, a house with wheel, you know, maybe <laughs> just start off with, like, an RV and then start adding <laughs> stuff to it until it turns into a whole city. One day it'll be a city. The amount of resources that a traction city uses as opposed to just a static city that's sitting there is ridiculous. Because, I mean, sure. the moving cities, like, they can't have... And, and they, they actually talk about at one point as London is bearing down on this wall in the, the anti-traction league wall area that ha there are a few little towns that used to be traction towns that have kind of stopped moving. And they suddenly have to start moving again. And they drive off, leaving a whole bunch of, like, nice farmland around them. Mm. A city like London doesn't have enough physical space on it to like grow all the food that it needs yeah like real cities are surrounded by gigantic fields to supply the food right right like the veneto plain is what supplies verona and venice and all my area of italy with food and you drive through and it's just like saskatoon or something it's just fields of wheat and corn and whatnot. right and, and they talk about it on like on london they eat a lot of like recycled food stuff right. and, and <laughs> algaes and things like that uh, what, what, what about sheer fuel like did you say you think it's mostly like wood and well they i coal? mean they talk they actually say that um like they say that they're like uh cutting down trees and breaking up uh uh the they're they've like taken a bunch of the furniture from the museum and are breaking it up and throwing it into the furnace so I guess they are. I mean, that doesn't seem like not even trains. Seems ran inadequate. On, like even trains ran on coal, not wood. <laughs> now maybe that's why the mountains are all gnawed away. Is if they're 
Which is interesting right, yeah. because this is a real thing that we've done in our world, which seems unbelievable. That in, I guess, West Virginia and other places like that, they've literally taken the tops off mountains. Right, because it's just more efficient to do it that way. Yeah, so that's a kind of large-scale like eating of the landscape that we've done. And you do hear about there are like some cities that are set up in like Alaska or in, in, in Antarctica or whatever. Their main thing is they are drilling for oil and stuff. Okay. Yeah, so I really like what you mentioned, this great variety of different ways that cities live. Right, yeah. It, again, with the mining in the real world, some of that mining equipment is insanely huge. Yeah, the trucks and the diggers. Like there are there are diggers that are basically like Ferris wheels with teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I think what really sells it for me is the way that people's attitudes are towards both towards their city, like of London, the pride of London and the feeling of identity with it, mm. and also the idea the contempt for static cities. Like, yeah. if you don't like the idea of getting eaten, you should have put your city on wheels long ago, like civilized people. <laughs> and and the uh, the main character, who's obviously grew up in London and has lived there all his life, when when he actually comes to the anti-traction league areas, he's quite surprised to see how nice they are. He always was told that they were these sort of horrible slums, people just kind of barely scraping by, because and but he doesn't understand the idea that. You know, when you're not moving around all the time, you can you have so much more access to resources. He was imagining what London was like when it doesn't move, which is uh, has a lot of problems. Dead, yeah. But when you're if you're actually you know deliberately in a place, you know, when you have farmland and all that kind of stuff, it's actually a whole bunch nicer. (laughs) Yeah, but he he still feels this attachment. I like this passage where he says, uh, "What would it be like to wake up every morning?" with the same view. Don't they long for movement and a change of scene? How do they dream without the grumbling vibrations of a city's engines to rock them to sleep? Mm. And everybody has really buys into this idea of survival of the fittest city. I mean, the people in London, of course. Right, well, but also even even the people in like other cities, obviously it's a competition, but there doesn't seem to be like a lot of ill will necessarily in, in some ways. It's like a sporting thing. Yeah. Like, you're terrified about the city eating you, but it's not like it's personal. Right. I mean, one interesting part is when someone says, hey, maybe we could talk to the mayor of another city and figure something out. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) It's a town-eat-town world. Scariness. This world is, it's pretty scary in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, we're talking about a world where... Resources do seem to be pretty slim. Some horrible stuff has happened. So large portions of the world are not habitable. And resources seem to be slim and these big cities driving around isn't helping anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's, yeah, the terror of London coming over the horizon and putting an end to your shit. There's a certain Mad Max aspect to it. <laughs> if they're driving cities instead of cars, yeah. I would like to see that movie. <laughs> yes. But on the other hand, there's a feeling of deep and rich culture in many places, which a lot of dystopias don't have. That's true. Both within the cities and in some of the non-city places we encounter, people are really living their lives and have art and history and language and all these things that are often stripped away. In London, you know, we obviously there's this rather rigid sort of guild structure and stuff. 
but it's not like they are doing any kind of you know, sort of mind control stuff or anything like that, which is fairly common in dystopia stuff. Yeah, and they're not trying to strip people of their past. It's like this is we have all this history, thousands of years of history. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, yeah, the Guild of Historians is very uh, one of the sort of four most important guilds. Yeah, we know who we are and where we belong. And there's a possibility to fly around in airships. There, in some ways, this is a very cheerful world. Uh, mm. But as you say, it is also very... I mean, population's much smaller, probably, after all the gigantic wars. Certainly, yeah. But it's so many thousands of years in the future, it's not a big deal. Like Nausicaa. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of parallels to Nausicaa, you know, not only with the how the people are living, but then with the giant super weapon that everyone's fighting over. And there definitely is a feeling of, you know, there is that, that like, the 60-minute war was this horrible thing that people did all this long time ago that was incredibly stupid. There is still this feeling that all the things that, that the old people did or the, the people who came before did that made the 60-minute war happen were really, really stupid, and we should not do those things. <laughs> Right, so that's pretty good to go a few thousand years remembering how bad it is to nuke yourself completely. Mm. I mean, in some, there doesn't seem to have been, like, big wars in, certain, in some ways because they're just these... I mean, there's these towns going around eating each other, but there isn't, like, uh, any kind of... I guess you can't have global conflict when well, that's a great everyone's point, so Paul. isolated from each other. No war. <laughs> like, in, in <laughs> fact, eating a city seems to be a little less cruel than conquering a city in some ways. I mean, the city ceases to exist. There's that. But, you know, you're not murdering all these people. Right. I guess they shoot rockets at the other town and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, danger, damage does happen. But there's actually in the... Um, it's more like a car chase. The, there's a little bit of the, the sequel book at the end of this book. That they're like at a bar or something. And Tom hears about this other town that's... One of the things is that they send in like a commando team to another city and like take over the city and then basically force it to turn around and drive back towards their city so that it can be eaten. Uh -huh. And this greatly offends him on a deep level because it's very, it feels very much against municipal Darwinism. The idea that rather than the cities duking each other out, you know, the people are messing up the system by, taking over a city and forcing it to drive back. <laughs> I kind of like that. It is a world with slavery. There's that. It's true. Uh, our hero is very surprised. Is like, well, you know, I've heard rumors that some places do slavery, but, oh, wow, that's so barbaric. Of course, he doesn't know that London has essentially slavery with what they're doing to very minor criminals. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, things are not ideal, you know, in terms of working conditions, a lot of it is sort of that 19th century industrial revolution style, extremely dangerous, extremely dirty, short lifespan kind of thing, which is obviously not great. Yeah, there's a theme of loyalty to your city and identification with your city blinding you to the cruelty and reality of your, how things work. Mm-hmm which is equivalent to nationalism, but kind of in different in interesting ways. How would they do? I am a merchant of Airhaven. 
I live in this floating city of Airhaven. We trade with all the other cities, and we have a kind of special status because we're not easy to prey upon. We're treated as like an amazing tourist destination. So sometimes Airhaven will come in conjunction with one of the cities, and people will take balloons up, fancy balloons up to come and visit and see our trade goods. So life on Airhaven is interesting because everything has to be extremely light. So every object in my home I can lift with one hand, including the piano. And all the goods that I sell are extremely light. So things like spices and the wispiest of fabrics and fruit that is mostly air. Big fluffy bread. It's also what <laughs> we're known for. It's also a tourist thing. They love that shit. Candy. Uh-huh. And because we're Airhaven, I get to see all the different cities in a way that the people in the cities don't. People are extremely parochial. Almost everyone was born in a city and has never seen another city. But by my privilege of being in Airhaven, I get to drop in on all these different ones. And they're always happy to see Airhaven. It's always a holiday when we come by. So I get to meet people from all over. Airhaven is very multicultural as well. The only thing we have in common is a fear of fire <laughs> and a hatred of anybody who tries to puncture an airbag or light a spark. We'll toss him right over the side rather than have nice. him endanger my airy goods and my lifestyle. Nice. I am a watcher on the wall of the Anti-Traction League city. Mm. So we're sitting here on the wall and also obviously we live in the city. There's a, the city is actually built into the wall. So it's the sort of, it's kind of a tiered city, like the, the moving cities, except it's actually built into the mountain. We can see out into the, the great hunting ground and see that it's just, you know, it's just gray and brown and stuff. Whereas everything on our side of the wall is beautiful and green mm. and nice. And every once in a while, a city will like come by and, you know, try to do something, but it's literally just mountains all the way along, except for this wall, which is, you know, like some ridiculous, it's like 20 feet deep wall. There's just no way they can do anything. It's and full of have, cannons in the wall. Yeah. Plus a fleet, an air fleet. I mean, we've had big, big cities come here and they're uh, in ruins. The, the wall is surrounded by the ruins of cities that have tried to come and take us out. So... We're not too scared of any city that tries to mess with us. So what's it like being a lookout then? You seem pretty complacent. You're... Yeah, I feel like there's a, it, there's, it's definitely very, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of nothing happening. Like I'm the, the, the area around the wall um, is sort of a no man's land in, in the sense of there's no reason why a city would come there. I mean, everyone knows where it is and there's no reason a city would come there unless they're trying to do something, either trying to, you know, surrender or, or stop moving or trying to attack us. They can't exactly sneak up on you. Right. So there's a lot of time that it's just, there isn't much going on. But every once in a while, something, you know, gets real, real exciting. But whenever we see a city way off in the distance, we sound the alarm and have all sorts of uh, protocols in place to see what the situation is. And you're living on the very top level of the, this vertical city which is a cool thing about it, that it's all based around ladders. It's a wall city that's all spread up and down the side of this wall. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. I don't think that people are actually living in the wall that's protecting it. I think no, they're living along the outside of the wall, up and down it. It's tiers and tiers going vertically all the way to the top of city. Right, and I mean, and it's also right in the like. There's mountains all around too. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a very it is a very vertical. It's it's almost like the you know the tiered thing of a one of the moving cities, except obviously we're not moving along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to hang out at the top. I don't know if I don't know if I would actually be living at the top of the wall, but uh, at least that's where I'm doing spending most of my time working. Hope for the future. So this is the more spoilerific section. So if you're planning to read the book, you probably shouldn't listen to this part. So yeah, I mean the I guess the hope for the future in the short term is pretty good. I mean, the big scheme that Magnus Chrome was working on has been completely destroyed. Magnus Chrome being the engineer mayor of the city? Yeah. And so the big thing he was gonna he had this big laser called the Medusa that was made out of old technology and uh they were able to overload it and destroy it. And which coincidentally also destroyed the entirety of London, which is not so good. Yeah, everybody in London died it seemed like which was yeah, brutal. Yeah, the the end of the book is actually quite apocalyptic in terms of people dying. Lots of characters that we actually know about die, and everybody in London appears to have died. Yeah, which it's is heavy. Tough. Yeah. Like in some ways, it's not a hundred percent certain that it was the right thing to do. London has been living as a predator city for a thousand years, and if they'd broken through the wall, they would have continued to live. London would have continued on, all that mm. tradition. You know, the cities on the other side would have a rough time. But that's what's been happening anyway all this time. Yeah. Like, and he was careful to show everybody kind of running away from the wall, migrating away from the wall. So even if they blast it with laser, it wouldn't kill that many people. Mm-hmm. I realize this sounds horrible now that I'm saying it. <laughs> I, what I quite like is that it's not that, you know, they, they have a plan for how they're going to blow up the laser and, you know, stop the whole thing. That's not what happens what happens is that the you know the laser is this weird piece of old technology they don't quite understand it asks for confirmation code and somebody by mistake or not by mistake but but maliciously and yeah well not really intentionally but just ends up type you know sort of basically falling onto the keypad putting in a whole bunch of random numbers and letters that the computer goes, oh, that is the wrong confirmation code. Overloading. <laughs> right. And it's just, so it's like there are safety things built in. So It's, it's like, like in Star Trek, which is also said in the future. It's quite easy to make computers blow themselves up. But so in terms of hope for the future, so yeah, theoretically, the anti-tractionist people could have gotten in there and, you know, either sabotaged it or done something else there too. So it wasn't necessarily the only way they could have, the only way that there were going to be a happy ending was to have it completely destroyed. So it was kind of a downer that London got completely smoked. So apart from that, there's no real change in the status quo, right? Yeah, I mean, there's still, all the other towns are still driving Lots around. Lots of driving cities. Anti-tractionist league is still completely intact. Yeah, it's no more or less hopeful than the world was at the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it was a dark blustery afternoon in spring 
and the city of London was chasing a small mining town across the dried out bed of the old North Sea. In happier times, London would never have bothered with such feeble prey. The great traction city had once spent its days hunting far bigger towns than this, ranging north as far as the edges of the ice waste and south to the shores of the Mediterranean. But lately, prey of any kind had started to grow scarce, and some of the larger cities had begun to look hungrily at London. For ten years now it had been hiding from them, skulking in a damp, mountainous western district, which the Guild of Historians said had once been the island of Britain. For ten years it had eaten nothing but tiny farming towns and static settlements in those wet hills. Now, at last, the Lord Mayor had decided that the time was right to take his city back over the land bridge into the great hunting ground. It was barely halfway across when the lookouts on the high watchtowers spied the mining town, gnawing at the salt flats twenty miles ahead. To the people of London it seemed like a sign from the gods, and even the Lord Mayor, who didn't believe in gods or signs, thought it was a good beginning to the journey east, and issued the order to give chase. The mining town saw the danger and turned tail, but already the huge caterpillar tracks under London were starting to roll faster and faster. Soon the city was lumbering in pursuit, a moving mountain of metal which rose in seven tiers like the layers of a wedding cake, the lower levels wreathed in engine smoke, the villas of the rich gleaming white on the higher decks, and above it all the cross on top of St Paul's Cathedral glinting gold, 2,000 feet above the ruined earth. Well, that was Mortal Engines. I had a lot of fun talking about that, Paul. Yeah, so did I. It's a great story and a really neat setting. So thank you to uh, those people who recommended it on the uh, Loading Ready Run forum. That's right. A lot of people mentioned it, but the first person who mentioned it was username Lysander. Yeah, so lots of thanks to Lysander for bringing it up to my attention. And then when I looked it up, I was like, we have to do this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, or be going to go into the... Sure. Do you have anything yeah. else you want to say? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. Just read books, people. They're very cool. Even though TV is good and movies are good, I'm still finding all kinds of great books through this project that I never would yeah. have read. And this is, uh, I mean, this is a nice, apparently, according to the uh, the Wikipedia article I was reading on it, apparently this was originally, he originally wrote this as an adult book, and he couldn't couldn't sell it. And then uh, he, Scholastic, thought that it might be a good young adult book, and so he, he removed some of the characters and changed a bunch of the, removed some of the more sort of political plotting stuff that uh, he thought wouldn't be very interesting to young adult readers and sort of repackaged it as a young adult book, which I think was probably a wise move. Yeah, well, it is an interesting question of what books could be young adultized and what mm -hmm. is the process like? So definitely simplifying it a bit, putting an emphasis on action and big basic emotions. But this is also very complicated I, there's a lot of emotional depth to this story. We didn't touch on the story at all, really, but the characters and the situations they're in are unusually rich, I would say. Mm, yeah, I think so. So uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Thank you, everybody, who has supported it through that. Our theme song is by Bradley Rains, and all the interstitial segments are by Kiara Kant. If you like this podcast, uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes 
or you can uh, check us out on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash loadingreadyrun. And you can leave us comments on uh, iTunes or on YouTube or uh, on our forum at loadingreadyrun.com slash forum. And uh, yeah, please let us know what you think, uh, whether you whether you like this episode, uh, whether you like us doing books rather than movies, you know, if you have any opinion one way or another on that. These are just some specifics you can tell us. Yes. I read it all eagerly. We read it all and yeah, tell us which one of us you like better. That's always an interesting discussion. I don't think that would be fair to you, Paul. Mm, I'm the clear favorite. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, so until next time. May the odds ever be in your favor, especially when you're crushed under the tread of a gigantic city like, say, uh -huh. Ottawa or Cornwall. <laughs> Imagine yeah. being crushed by Cornwall. That would just be Cornwall, Ontario, I'm talking about. Very humiliating. Way to go. <laughs> All right. right. Bye. Bye. Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfect.